Can we ever sing blessed assurance again now that we know apostasy is possible? That it's possible for true blue, born-again, spirit-filled Christians to walk away from faith in Christ and thereby lose the promise of eternal life. Do we have to go back to a vague, I hope so, when someone asks if we'll go to heaven when we die? Since it's possible to lose our salvation, can we ever say with certainty that we know we're going to heaven? Yes, we can. As long as we keep it in the present As long as we say, I know if I were to die today, I would go to heaven. You see, the possibility of apostasy in the future doesn't affect our present certainty one bit. All it does is remind us that our relationship with Christ has to be an ongoing relationship. And that's why the author of Hebrews prods us on to maturity by warning us about apostasy. He doesn't want us to become complacent about our faith. He doesn't want us to settle for spiritual milk when we should have gone on to be challenged by spiritual meat. He doesn't want us to stop growing. He knows if that happens We can lose everything. But he doesn't want to destroy a legitimate sense of assurance before God either. He doesn't want us to be left floating about in a sea of spiritual anxiety, never knowing whether we are saved or lost. So after the warnings, he goes on to assure his readers that they are not in any immediate danger of apostasy. And he bases his assurance about them upon the works that he sees in their life, the promises of God, and the priesthood of Jesus. Let's examine that blessed assurance today. And even with the realization that apostasy is possible, let us make certain that such apostasy is not an immediate danger For any of us. We're in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, these these words follow the author's illustration about ground that produces nothing but thorns and thistles 
and therefore ends up being burned. He's saying here that he and his associates are convinced of better things concerning the recipients of this letter. They had brought forth vegetation useful to the heavenly gardener, things that accompany salvation. He had noticed their works, and it was obvious they had produced more than just thorns and thistles. And this assured him that they were not in any present danger of being cursed. He also assured them that God had noticed their work. He could see the love they had shown and were continuing to show by ministering to the saints. And in spite of the fact that they had grown dull of hearing and weren't maturing as they should have been, God wasn't going to overlook nor forget what they were doing. They were working. They were loving. They were ministering to one another's needs. And that demonstrated the fact that while they weren't growing as they should, they had not fallen away from the Lord. It was their works that assured him of that fact. Now, many get apprehensive when we talk about works and the assurance of works, but they need not. Not if they understand what we are and are not talking about. We're not suggesting that it is our works that establish nor even maintain a relationship with the Lord. There is no way we can work our way into his favor or keep ourselves there by doing good. Isaiah made it clear that our works are but filthy rags in God's sight and in no way cancel out the horror of our sin. Good works, however, are an evidence of faith. And James makes it clear that we demonstrate our faith by our works. And that if our faith doesn't translate itself into works, it is not a legitimate saving faith. So if we're trusting Christ to save us, if we believe what he has promised us, if we have faith in him, we will be doing good works. Our faith will result in good works. Those works, then, can be seen by others and by ourselves. And they serve to assure us of the validity of our faith. In other words, we can be assured that we haven't fallen away from the Lord if we are still demonstrating love toward his name and his body. And we do that through works, by caring for the saints and ministering among them, by loving and serving God's people. Now, that's not to suggest that simply going to church is a guarantee that your spiritual life is in good shape. You may be slipping. Your hearing may have become dull, and your spiritual development may have come to a halt. And we should be alarmed if that's the case. But we need not assume that we're lost just because we're going through some rough times spiritually. 
We shouldn't throw in the towel and assume all is lost if we blow it or go through a time of spiritual doldrums. God is not so unjust to forget us. And the evidence of faith in our life, just because we're not all we should be. He's not going to turn his back on us just because we disappoint him or because we don't become all he would like for us to become. Now, as we noted last week, failure to go on to maturity can be deadly. A faith that doesn't keep pace with our life can easily be discarded as useless. We can abandon our faith. But God will never abandon us just because our faith isn't all it should be. As long as we love him and demonstrate the validity of our faith by works that can be seen and by involvement in the body of Christ, we can rest assured that we have not fallen away. We're not lost and in no immediate danger of being lost. It's very foolish, however, to think we can remain secure if we settle for a distant relationship with the Lord, if we try to stay on the fringes of faithfulness, it's easy to slip off the grid. We must show diligence to be all he wants us to be. And we would realize, if we would realize, the full assurance of hope. Until the end, we should pattern our lives after those who, through faith and patience, have inherited the promises. Those who have actually come into possession of all God has promised. We should imitate the faith of those we are confident have heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Their faith was made evident by their works. And our faith is made evident by our works. Our works, therefore, do assure us that we are still in the faith. This is the assurance of works, and we should be thankful for it. But that's not the only assurance we have. Our certainty isn't solely based on our works. We also have the assurance of promise, verses 13 through 18. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. 
The promise God made to Abraham and fulfilled assures us that God keeps his promises. His promise to Abraham was that he would bless him and multiply him, and that all nations would someday be blessed through him. But even the first part of the promise was slow in coming to fruition. It would be 25 years before Isaac, the son through whom the promise was to be fulfilled, would be born. But other than following a misguided suggestion from his wife that resulted in the birth of Ishmael, Abraham, our author says, waited patiently and obtained the promise. He never gave up his faith in God's word. Even when it was confusedly tested, being told to offer the son of promise as a sacrifice, Abraham demonstrated his absolute trust in God. And that resulted in God renewing the promise and further verifying it by an oath. After the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from sacrificing his son, the angel said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. God reaffirmed his promise and added to it his personal oath. Now, that did not make God's promise more secure. His promise is, in and of itself, totally reliable. But God added an oath to his promise for added assurance. You know, when we seek to make the truthfulness of something absolute, we swear by someone higher than ourselves that it is true. And that's why, so help me God, is said in courtrooms. Well, God wanted to take away any doubt from Abraham's mind, so he swore that what he had promised would come true. And since there's nothing higher than God, he swore on himself that what he said was true. His very nature could assure Abraham that his promises were sure. In the same way, we, as heirs, of the promise. We who have been blessed by Jesus, the seed of Abraham, through whom all nations are blessed, have God's promise that he will do what he says he will do. We don't have to worry about God changing his mind. We don't have to worry about God changing the rules in the middle of the game. His purpose is unchangeable. He wants us to fellowship with him eternally. His promise and oath have been given to assure us that he will never fudge on his end of the deal. He will not disqualify those who through faith and patience trust in Christ to the end to save them. We have his word on that. 
The final assurance has to do with Christ himself, what he has done and where he now is. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This hope we have, the promise of eternal life in the presence of God, is an anchor of the soul. Even when things go wrong in life and our temporal hopes are dashed to pieces, we have an anchor of the soul, a hope that is steadfast and sure. And a hope that is made sure by the fact that he who provides us with that hope has already realized that hope himself. Jesus has already entered within the veil. He is already in the presence of God. Just as the high priest of Israel entered the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the room wherein the presence of God dwelt, by passing through the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, so Jesus has passed through the veil that separates us from the presence of God today. And he didn't enter within the veil for his own sake, but for ours. He did so to be able to function as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, on our behalf. A priest who not only enters into the presence of God himself, but who also has the power to bring us into the very presence of God as well. He has entered as a forerunner for us, one who leads the way so others can follow. And the analogy of an anchor that enters within the veil is a powerful picture of what Jesus has done for us by entering within the veil. Maneuvering a large ship into harbor was often a very dangerous thing to do. An unexpected puff of wind could crash a ship into the rocks of the narrow channel that led often into the harbor. So a special maneuver involving the anchor was devised by the ancient mariners. They would lower their anchor into a smaller boat and have that boat go into the harbor. Their anchor would then be dropped overboard and embedded firmly within the cove. The ship would then lower its sails and be pulled safely into harbor by winding up the anchor chain. I think that's a powerful picture of the hope we have in Christ. He has entered the harbor and planted anchor securely in the presence of God. All we have to do now is hang on to the chain and wind it up. I like that picture. <laughs> I like that picture. 
No matter how dangerous the rocks or violent the storms that threaten to crash us into them, we are secure if we'll just hang on and keep winding. Jesus is already there. And he can get us there too. We can be sure about that. So in spite of the fact that apostasy is possible, we must be concerned about going on to maturity, and we must be concerned about going on to maturity. We also have the blessed assurance that eternal life is ours today. Today. We have the assurance of our works, works that demonstrate our love for the name of Christ, works that honor him. We have the assurance of God's promise, promise that he'll not change the rules in the middle of the game, that there's no need to worry about the prize not being there when we finish the race. And we have the assurance of Christ. He's gone before us, and if we'll just hang on to him, he'll get us safely into the presence of God. All we need to do is trust him and obey him as best we can. We leave the rest up to him. Do you want the blessed assurance that's available in Christ? Are you willing to entrust yourself to him? Are you willing to give yourself to him? If you are and have not made public your commitment to do so, we encourage you to do so now. It is possible to fall away from Christ. That's why we take seriously the warnings of Scripture. But we can also have that blessed assurance that comes through him. If you're not certain that if you were to die this moment, you would go to heaven. If there's doubt, if there's question in your mind, we need to get rid of that. God doesn't want us going through our daily lives always wondering, am I or am I not saved? You're not saved by being good. That's not what we said. You're not saved by coming to church. We didn't say that either. You're not saved by piling up, you know, the good stuff in your life that overweighs the bad. That won't work. You're saved by Christ and him alone. And we can have every assurance that he will save us if we hang on to him. If we just hang on to him and trust him. And as best we can, live lives that honor him. If you are doing that, and someone says, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Don't, don't give him a week. Well, I, gee, I hope so. That's so lame. And that's not, that's not humility. Now, some are saying, oh, well, that, that sounds arrogant to say, oh, yes, I am. Like, oh, I'm a good person. No, 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 no. You say, yes, I am, because I have a perfect Savior. You got that? That's what gives us the confidence. 
We have entrusted ourselves to Him. If you don't have that assurance, I pray you'll come and entrust yourself to Him now.